back, everyone, to Couch to Couch, making therapy make sense with Chuck LeBlanc. I'm excited about the show today. I have a longtime friend, Sherry Law, on the show. She, We've been friends for ugh, over a decade now. Can you believe it's been that long since we were in undergrad? Right. Uh, we went to undergrad together at St. Thomas University, and we're, we're kind of famous for our lunchtime talks, <laughs> so this is pretty cool. Um, so Sherry Law is a licensed counseling therapist in the Fredericton region since 2014. She has been actively involved in leadership roles for non-for-profits since, for not-for-profits, I got to say that right, since 2016. She sat as the president of the Technology and Innovation Solutions Chapter, the TISC, of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association, and oversaw the publishing of the current guidelines of ethical technology use in counseling therapy, endorsed by the CCPA. She currently sits as an executive board member of the New Brunswick Career Development Association and is a part of their conference planning committee and is the president-elect of the College of Counseling Therapists of New Brunswick, the CCTNB. That's pretty amazing considering we've had a lot of New Brunswick therapists, uh, a part of that association, on this show. Uh, Sherry is also a female startup entrepreneur pursuing market solutions from her research into virtual reality and its effects on mood in long-term care centers. Sherry is fascinated by the intersection between the digital age, the normalization of digital practice, and their impact on different demographics within therapy. This intersection can create increasingly complex considerations for appropriate therapeutic work. Welcome to the show, Sherry. Thank you so much, Chuck, for the invitation. I'm so stoked uh, to be here today. You're welcome. We're, I'm really excited to have you. I often say we as if I have more than just me on the show. Just ignore that part. <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> um, so yes, I'm excited to have you here. But before we jump in, I wanted to just make sure that I didn't miss anything in the bio uh, no, and you... to give you the opportunity to jump in and help people find you, find your work, um... find out where you are. You got everything right uh, on the mark, on the nose, and uh, people can find me on LinkedIn. I have all of the work that I do associated with that. I don't really typically use too much social media, and we can probably talk a little bit about that too, if you would like in this show. Um, and my name is Sherry Law, S-H-E-R-R-Y-L-A-W. So if you would like to connect, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Awesome. And I know a lot of your work is on LinkedIn and a lot of ways to find the, the research because you've been doing quite a bit of research and especially in technology for a long time now, I think. Yes, um, my research interest has started back in 20, I'd say probably 2013 um, and has been ongoing ever since. Awesome. Almost a decade in the, the hands of tech. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so my biggest question of the hour, which I'm, I'm super stoked about because I have an interest obviously in VR. I know we've talked about that years ago. But is, is that intersectionality? I'm, I'm really interested to know about the digital side of the therapeutic world. How you, where does your research go and what are your thoughts on that? So my research uh, right now as it stands is a lot more about um, body mechanics rather mm -hmm. than than on mood. Uh, originally, my, my research was tethered to my master's degree and I was looking at mood just as something to to to. to to research to finish my degree. Um, and back then, um, back in 2013, my, my grandma got sick. And um, if you can see me, I'm of Asian descent. Uh, my grandma lives in Hong Kong. So when she got sick, it was also during the winter time. And in winter in New Brunswick, uh, the, the storms can get very chaotic. A lot of the flights 
were canceled uh, when my parents started trying to get back home. And um, I, I still wasn't quite sure on what I was going to research. But when she got sick, all I could think about was the population density in Hong Kong, how people had very little space to their livelihoods. Um, it, it's oftentimes because of the lack of space, very cluttered. And my imagination took over and I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't help my parents. I can't help my grandmother. What else could I do? And when uh, VR kind of start becoming popular around this time because of Palmer Lucky's um, Oculus Rift uh, DK1, I very quickly just merged these two thoughts together. And I was like, holy crap, what if I could put her on the beach and just made her feel somewhat more comfortable? If I could just change her environment, could it change her feelings? And that was the uh, the origins of my of my pursuit on research uh, with the inclusion of virtual reality from a therapeutic lens. It started off in mood and uh, since then has has kind of deviated into uh, looking at detection of dementia and also uh, assessing for fall risk. Okay, that's amazing. And what was the the findings? As far as mood is concerned. So as far as mood was concerned, and back at that time, um, because it was still so early, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, ethic review boards and, and agencies were very uncertain about her, how virtual reality was going to um, impact human health and wellness. So our research had to be very piloted and small and, um, and open because mm -hmm. there was such a dearth of it. Uh, all I was measuring was well-being, and so we used the uh, the WHO five as the World Health Organization well-being inventory five. It's a five-question questionnaire, and uh, and we looked at virtual realities, just general virtual reality. Like I had a, a big library for people to select uh, different experiences from. We looked at uh, the demographic of long-term care populations, so any adult that lived in long-term care. And then we compared it to our control, which is how does VR compare to just people getting read to by a volunteer? Mm -hmm. And uh, what we showed was there was a, a significant uh, improvement in their well-being um, through the exposure of virtual reality. And in my personal experience through the research, it ranged from just, uh, the, I had a, a gentleman that was in his 90s. Um, I tried to explain what virtual reality was to get the consent. Um, and it was so difficult to, to overcome the initial barrier of explaining what it was. Mm -hmm. The explanation was so difficult and buy-in was so hard to get because explanations don't, don't uh, do virtual reality justice. Mm -hmm. But the moment these people put on the headset, they got it. And so this this um, person who is over 90 went from, you know, being quite blah about the description, being exposed to then an underwater uh, jellyfish migration through the experience, the blue. This is a Google funded, I think. No, no, no. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> it's it's an experience anyways uh, that that virtualizes um, underwater events such as meeting a whale um, and a jellyfish migration and also a deep sea exploration experience to him coming out of it and saying, you know, I'm over 92 years old now and I didn't think that I could learn anything new. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> yeah. And also these other experiences where people with uh, degenerative uh, conditions missed out on the technological wave. So I had this other participant who was uh, working in office work and then developed a, um, she developed MS and so was bound to a wheelchair for, you know, from my understanding, over two decades. Mm. And so when I was able to put virtual reality uh, within her realm of experience, she felt like she caught up to everybody else. She missed email. She missed working uh, using Zoom teleconferencing. She missed social media, all of those things. But virtual reality made her feel like she caught back up and she was able to do something she had never done before, which was to ride on a uh, roller coaster. Oh, wow. And so there, here's this person who's been confined to a wheelchair and now she's you know, experiencing these 30 feet drops, uh, as far as her physiology was concerned, this was a real experience. Mm -hmm. And then I would try to fan wind in her face while she was in <laughs> VR. And, um, and then I would shake her wheelchair to give her a sense of vibrations as well. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable, remarkable what VR can do in terms of mood. Yeah, it's fascinating. I know uh, part of my research as a therapist, I know I bring a lot of philosophy into the mix because they're Philosophy and psychology are, well, the same discipline, except, you know, modernity got a hold of it and extracted it like a like an amputation. But that's for another show. Um, and so one of the dominant philosophers in my view is Merleau-Ponty. So I'm not sure if you've seen any Merleau-Ponty, but his concept was uh, bodies in the world. So our perceptual reality is developed through how our, what our bodies can afford us in the world around us, right? So if we're looking at a coffee cup, you know, if I point the camera at the coffee cup, I can see one side, you can see another side. But because of your physical experience holding a coffee cup, you know that the other side will fix the image of the cup. So you can, you, can, you can be assured I'm not holding like a movie coffee cup that's flat, right? Unless it's a good replica. But part of how your ocular experience can reach out and grab that is because you've touched a coffee cup before. You've physically mm. seen it and you know what it's all about. But if you've never seen one before, you wouldn't really know what the heck you're looking at. So it's a little bit uh, of an extension to Marshall McLuhan's media theory. A so little bit, yeah. the medium is the message mm -hmm. where um, a person, how the modality of their experiencing, whether it was information or concepts, uh, kind of informs the actual living of the person or their interpretation of the world. Exactly. And so he considers that, uh, he calls it affordances. It's like what the reality affords you is oh. purely based on how your body moves around. Eyes, okay. ears, nose, all of it builds pictures of it by actually interacting. Oh. And then the, the items themselves have lives of their own based on what is afforded to them. Kind of like a rock being put on a slant will roll because it has the ability to roll because of its shape. So VR kind of puts all of that into topsy-turvy because you can pretty much simulate anything your imagination can come up with in a virtual, uh, in a virtual environment mm -hmm. and modality. However, the programming can make physics bend in ways that it's not supposed to. Um, some experiences in VR, you can, you can start painting in three dimensions around yourself. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you can blow it up. You can, you can largen what you just made and walk through the, the 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 very thing that you were just painting. That's amazing. Yeah. And then you can do this all online as well. So you can invite your friends and family into the experience as you're messing around with it or creating it. That's fantastic. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about things like VR and technology itself. 
because it's it's a new dimension of the perceptual world that we haven't had access to before. So I'm interested in how it, by having experience in those places, how does that change how someone moves about the world? Because new experiences are had, digested. I always think of it in terms of like video game logic with the experience <laughs> points and skill trees and stuff. Uh, but it's a whole new experience. So I imagine for the, you know, the 92 year old and the experience with the jellyfish, it was a lot more than just learning. Like the reality would have shifted there because he was in that world. Absolutely. Um, another great example of exactly the point that you're making, Chuck, is um, I had another participant who was a teacher. And when I put her into virtual reality, I, I kind of take these things in mind. And, um, and so I exposed her to this uh, experience called Titans of Space, mm-hmm. where you go on to this kind of um, uh, one track tour of the uh, solar system. So you make stops planet to planet, you can take what you see and then pull it towards yourself where you can start looking at the planet as though it was a coffee cup. And then when you let go, it's back to being this massive object where you literally had to lean back to see the size of. Hmm. And then you would have this little panel in front of you um, explaining what Mars was about, how large it was in terms of kilometers, um, some of the other attributes about this planet uh, from history that we've learned about. And so for children, like in terms of this teacher's perspective, for children to have that exposure and that physiological interaction with Mm -hmm. this very abstract conceptual notion of these, you know, planets that are so far beyond our our scope, um, it, it changes the entire game of learning. For the longest time in human history, we had only books to rely on or or speech. And then we had to do the guesswork of what people actually meant when they were trying to explain concepts to us or um, teach us new knowledge. But with virtual reality, it can give that learning and experience. It's experiential mm-hmm. learning. Um, and actually the government of New Brunswick has taken this to heart and have started building uh, pilot projects to include virtual reality as part of their career development exploration uh, curriculum. And uh, I don't know how far it's gone so far. I'm not really connected with the project, mm-hmm. uh, but that's sort of what VR can uh, be used for. It, it expands what's accessible and, and changes how people really understand their reality. That's fascinating. And I, just one thing I was thinking about as you were talking was uh, the concept of experiential learning, like hands-on learning, right? You know, some people learn through touch. They got to grab it and play with it as opposed mm-hmm. to just think about it, right? I'm thinking of, you know, individuals who are uh, not neurotypical, neurodiverse individuals. Yes. And then you're putting abstract concepts in the palms of their hands where they actually get to play. Like the only missing piece is sensation but there's still the concept of play because you're pulling, pushing and all that kind of stuff. I imagine there's probably science experiment like VRs out there where you can become like close in on the molecule, right? Mm -hmm. And then pull out and see how the baking soda and the vinegar interact. That's a whole other ball game than just listening to a teacher or writing or reading. Absolutely. I have experiences in my STEAM library uh, where you shrink down to the size of a blood cell and you explore the vascular system uh, of a human body as a result. Like you can ride the cell and like look at these pores uh, inside the, the um, uh, what's it called? The tubes, our tubes, our bloodstream. <laughs> the veins? 
the veins thank you You're and then you travel through the veins and it's a it's it's a quite the journey and and um a different way of learning for sure that's amazing i wonder i know coming from the space of like adhd so for myself right everything was hands-on despite doing like a theoretical degree i always brought things hands-on because like that's how i learn right mm -hmm. uh but with what's typical for individuals with ADHD is they are more reliant on their visual cortex, right? So it's, it's more pictographic than anything else. So this yeah. could, I mean, I'm VR could change the game as far as career advancements for individuals with ADHD. When you're just talking about, uh, wow, the body that can even open up a whole new avenue for individuals who might have wanted to be doctors. Mm -hmm. And and just to kind of clarify for a lot of the viewers or not viewers, but a lot of the audience members out there um, for the show, virtual reality uh, in, in the definition that I use requires what's called a head mounted device. So mm -hmm. it's a divisor that sits on your eyes um, because there's a there's a very big differentiation between what virtual reality can do versus what screens can do. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at a computer screen, for example, it's a box that transports you into a digital reality, sure. Um, but then outside of that box is still reality. It, it, it There's not the same kind of immersion that occurs uh, com uh, contrasted with when you use a head-mounted device, it becomes a 360 degree experience. Mm -hmm. And what your brain does is it it, it subconsciously, so without your realization, when you're in VR, when you're using a head-mounted device, the fact that when you turn to your right or when you look up, everything is staying consistent in terms of a virtual translation, mm -hmm. your body will respond to that. Your body is going to try and recreate what reality means to you. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of... A lot of um, reprogramming that happens in your brain when this occurs um and this is uh this is uh extremely um uh impactful mm -hmm. for any kind of learning uh, for any kind of experience having your reality reinterpreted uh, and then kind of seen as reality in mm -hmm. the base brain uh that, that's that's quite a it's quite a feat it's fascinating too i remember the last time i was in vr i played a game a zombie game of course because i'm obsessed with them and it was uh, kind of like a wave game i forget the name of it now but where they would come from all sides Bad. brookhaven i can't remember it's been right. it's been a couple of years um but what i was fascinated playing that game was the chills that would go up my spine knowing that something was behind me yes which was a very different experience in playing because uh, i have a computer set up i have a big rig giant monitor uh speakers all around but it was a very different chill up the spine and like worry amygdala response is where i'm going with that is a very different amygdala response than when you're in vr when you can actually look mm -hmm. right you know instead of just having the feeling of turning around like when you're playing a horror game on a computer, if you actually turn around, they are, in fact, behind you. <laughs> That's the experience of presence where there's a suspension of disbelief, like your body just doesn't interpret it as anything other than real. Right. But it's safe. Mm -hmm. So it's it's got huge implications for things like, um, you know, police training or uh, any other kind of training, such as in, even in counseling. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's uh, let's dive into the counseling side of things. So have you used, well, I guess you have through your research, but where does it come up in session? Has it come up in session? Uh, it's something I've been interested in specifically with um, phobic patients. I've done a lot of research on that myself, but I haven't used it yet. Um, what are your take on that? I think that there's so much uh, possibility and opportunity to take virtual reality into uh, into treatment. Mm-hmm. And we have a dearth of research. And so it's really important to be iterative in these types of uh, uh, using new tools. Mm-hmm. Even in Zoom, um, a lot of counseling therapists are just so... Uh, they're, they're not proficient in understanding some of the risks around using technology um, as much as we can expect a lot of benefit. The pandemic has certainly shifted uh, health, the health industry in a really dramatic way where everybody went from, you know, uh, before the pandemic, no one even considered using Zoom as a uh, legitimate modality for healthcare at all. Like it was, they, they were claiming that it was unsafe, uh, there, there was no security or privacy, um, that, uh, you know, there was too much training involved for the professionals to accept this shift. Um, and, and they just, the industry seemed very resistant to any change. Um, and the pandemic happened, and we had no choice. So then, all of a sudden, everybody was on Zoom. Everyone was was doing conferences, and and they they're starting to even talk about Zoom fatigue. However, something as simple as okay, well, what's in your background, and how mm. does that impact treatment, mm. or are you looking at the camera, and how does that impact the the client? Mm. Um, having good internet, uh, where is your information being routed to? Is it staying on Canadian soil, or is it entering a different jurisdiction? All of those questions were not really uh, clear for many practitioners. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I like to be a little bit more play it safe. Um, I get really hyped up and excited about the possibility of using new tools, but very hesitant to integrate it into practice mm-hmm. because, you know, our clients are vulnerable. And I certainly don't want to, you know, use them uh, for experimentation, especially not without their consent. And I'm very... Um, I'm very aware of the possible risks involved uh, in in terms of harm or in terms of misuse, um, but there is still a lot of uh, opportunity for for great use in 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 in, uh, in terms of using VR into practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the virtual world has really blown up for counseling specifically, or the medical fields. Uh, once the pandemic, I mean, it was more of an accelerated crisis. Right? Mm-hmm. We had to jump in. The training had to come real fast. Yeah, yeah. But you do make a really great point. Like VR is fantastic for mm-hmm. uh, the research that has come out in the field about virtual reality has mainly focused on phobias, exposure therapy, uh, flooding. Like it's it's really great for that. It's mm-hmm. a safe way to introduce um, those types of uh, frightening stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the one time that I ever did use it in practice or even quasi practice, I was invited by a colleague to enter a session with her participant or, or her client and to bring my virtual reality device into session. It wasn't for any specific intervention. It was just mm-hmm. to show the client like, hey, look at this. this is pretty cool. And like, you like games, right? You know, what do you think? 
Um, however, uh, it would be fantastic for something like ex uh, existential therapy, where mm. you can reprogram the person's world. Um, you know, can you imagine having a counseling session in space where the client is floating in space and looking at earth while talking about what has value and meaning to them? Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of that one. I went straight to phobia and I, I'm an existential therapist. So that kind of made me shiver. That's exciting. Imagine that. <laughs> I would love to have a counseling session sitting in a lounge chair on the moon, staring at the world, right? <laughs> Talking about yeah. meaning. It's, uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and we have no idea how this might impact um, treatment outcomes. No mm -hmm. idea. No idea, but we do know how it helps the client with, a, no, not the client, but a person with different experiences. I think so. You know, and one running thought that I have as far as, you know, I guess the intersection between my my own research in psychology and philosophy is that the human being is an experiential thing. It's what we do. You know, it's we're, we're a very tenacious, resourceful, naked monkey mm -hmm. who, who has a, a, a difficulty standing still. So by getting new experiences, you typically can spark adaption. You know, we're always adapting. Something I always say is we're always adapting. It's just, do we have a, a bead on where we're adapting or where we're headed? Mm -hmm. We're not a creature that stands still. So I'm always fascinated by new experiences and how they increase uh, different capabilities. You know, one of the pieces that I take from Amartya Sen's capability approach to development is the fact that we like affordances I was mentioning earlier, mm -hmm. he mentions, he calls them capabilities, which is just opportunities for actions. So we have a field of opportunities for actions based on our biopsychosocial upbringing, all that kind of good stuff. But the virtual world adds a whole other ball of wax to experience. So we're not, I'm not quite sure what new capabilities or affordances are going to be developed from that, but it's neat to see it happen. I mean, if you just talk about gamers in general, like I've been a gamer my whole life and I have a, a lot of clients that are gamers and using video games as metaphor in counseling, there's always a lot more similarities to the real world than we think. Like I use a lot of RPG elements and gaming experience elements, but there's a lot of ties, which for me makes sense because the art imitates life. Like we would have got that from somewhere, but it's neat to watch as someone like that dawns on them you know, working with a client with, with like anxiety mm -hmm. and asking them how their first run through Dark Souls or Elden Rings went. Absolutely. Right? Where you're having the exact same response. How the hell did you press on after the first, you know, 482 <laughs> deaths in, uh, in 30 minutes? And Absolutely. you can just see how those skills, which are related to real life, it's all the same stuff, mm -hmm. uh, can be graphed in very many different ways. Um, a quick inter interrupt here, um, just to kind of uh, potentially gauge your interest. I've been working with a game development company recently um, to help build a mental health uh, based video game. And so if you have an interest, I'd like love to make a connect. I think they're looking for more counselors to have a look at their game. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, uh, there's NDA protection, so I can't, you know, speak too much on it. Um, but yeah, if you have an interest, I, I feel like you may be interested in this project. I would love that. Send it my way. Okay, we'll awesome. Because <laughs> it does, I mean, mental health in video games does have a huge, well, growth in video games has a huge impact. Yeah, they're both about stories. Exactly. 
Yeah, it's all about stories. It's all about, you know, how do you see yourself, which is a story? How do you see these characters, which are all stories? And how do they connect with one another? And that's why I think the gaming community um, is so connected with their video games. Um, we sort of live vicariously through those characters. We see ourselves in them or we wish to be them on some level. Yeah, it's amazing watching somebody use that in real life. Like, remember this character? What did they do? You know, mm -hmm. those, the images of courage and bravery and all these little pieces that show up. You know, the, you making those decisions is in a safe environment, but they're coming from you. Yeah. How can we use that? I recently was playing a, a game called Disco Elysium, where all of it was about... Have you seen it? Have you played it? I've played it. That game was mind-blowing. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was so incredible. Like, the, the, initial, um, the initial opening sequence of the character the main character i don't want to you know provide too many spoilers but the main character talking to his own like amygdala and mm -hmm. and uh, these other port parts of his psyche was it, it got me hooked immediately yeah i was jumping off the couch yeah, my poor <laughs> wife was beside me she doesn't know this world and i was like oh my god he's talking to his amygdala right now look yeah. at how the amygdala is responding we could just i just went crazy playing that oh, game <laughs> it was amazing i i need to do a second playthrough it's awesome yeah um Whoa, I had a question. <laughs> you just got me so excited about video games that I just have to take a thought for a moment. Yeah, yeah, take your time. Right, so we've gone through many different conversations, you know, from, from mood to mm -hmm. experiential to Merleau-Ponty's body um, to video games. And you had originally mentioned that now your research is related to, like, body mechanics. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through a little bit of that? Because, I mean, you can't say drop a bomb like that without me being interested in, <laughs> in hearing about it. So so to start off, I, I guess I, I just have to say, like, this is kind of um, going a little bit beyond the counseling scope. Um, so, you know, audience members, be mindful. Um, in my, my original research on mood, I came across some funding to complete the research. And then afterwards I came to realize, oh, they doubled the funding without really telling me uh, until after my research was kind of already underway. And so I had no plans for this um, extra pot of money, but I did realize when I first started spending time at the long-term care centers, like, holy bananas, there's a lot of health gaps here. Like mm -hmm. these folks need help. Um, they don't have access to a lot of the services that could improve their lives, and they are extremely vulnerable. And so in the realm of um, long-term care and aging especially, there are some pillars that are extremely important um, for, for maintaining uh, seniors' health, one of them being fall prevention. The moment that a senior takes a fall, it decreases their well-being statistics and a lot of dimensions of their life uh, in terms of health just starts plummeting. Mm -hmm. So they start feeling insecure in their own bodies. Like they can't trust their body anymore. Mm -hmm. They start isolating themselves. They no longer take part in hobbies because they're afraid of falling again. There's also a lot of things like shame that mm -hmm. uh, comes into play. The body also doesn't heal the same anymore. And so when it comes to aging health, um, or the healthy aging, it's all about prevention. And so while I was spending time in long-term care, um, I, I was speaking to some of the administrators and they're like, you know what, work on fall prevention. And I was like, okay, well, I'll think about it. Like, that's not my forte, but I'm sure something can, you know, I, I wanna help folks. Like I, I just wanna do good work. 
And so I started working on, on building virtual reality software. And then, um, you know, my, my co-founder and I, Simon Dugray Razoon, uh, we founded Innerva Virtual back in 2019. And we started really focusing on fulfilling the other healthcare gaps that are, um, that, 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 that exist in the healthcare system, especially here in New Brunswick and in Canada. Um, we have a, a growing demand with uh, limited supply of, of professionals to assist in that realm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the tax dollars does go to urgent care. So it's after someone falls. The surgeries, it, you know, all the tax dollars goes to pay for the surgeries and rehabilitation and those kinds of things. Um, and so we were thinking maybe virtual reality can provide some sort of extra support. You know, maybe it can help in these other ways. Maybe we can track the body and start, you know, standardizing tests for people to do on their own without having the extra guidance of a clinician, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what virtual um, and games, virtual reality and games are really great at doing is standardizing process, mm-hmm. um, creating a structure. And it's 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 going to be the same for player A as player B. And, you know, if we put some body trackers on this individual and they go through these tests over time, can we measure decline before this person takes a fall? Hmm. Can we start capturing other kinds of indicators where someone is either improving their mobility or are they going through increasing declines and and we need to escalate this for their general physician, um, general practitioner to intervene? And also dementia is another field that is uh, very much highlighted in healthy aging. The moment folks develop dementia symptoms, there's no going back. It's all about prevention and and delaying the progression of this mm-hmm. illness. And uh, apparently in in some of my um, in some of my research, dementia is highly underdiagnosed uh, in in North America. And so things like car accidents can happen because no one caught uh, that dementia was beginning to progress in a person. Mm -hmm. And so now we're designing um, virtual reality experiences that kind of do a a multitude of things. We're we're measuring fall risk and we're also looking at uh, measuring cognitive declines such as dementia uh, symptoms. That's amazing. So I would imagine with preventative techniques come tools to assist in a way I, I okay. I'm thinking of cognitive decline uh, but now you, you have my wheels spinning about the body because it's all connected right because if you're going through a transformation of a, an ailing body that does affect self-esteem so just like you were mentioning but it also will affect your mood and mental health right mm-hmm. start to worry about things happening and isolating so that's a big I mean that's that's a, like a one-stop shop towards depression yeah and anxiety right Absolutely. Um, and so with preventative tactics, other than measurement, are there, did you find like games or something that would help with cognitive decline? Is there ways to bring people into virtual reality to start working out uh, imbalances or being interested? I'm thinking more interested in working out. Um, you know, maybe they can take a cycle and go on the moon or <laughs> swim in Uranus or something. I don't know. <laughs> So that's certainly something that um, my company is is largely exploring right now is can we gamify and make healthy aging fun? 
provide that sense of independence and, and control, give that back to uh, the senior population whenever they enter uh, this virtual world. Um, you know, we we oftentimes think about going to the doctors or going through rehabilitation or, or clinical assessment as being um, on the on the safer side of things, boring mm -hmm. or too clinical and unrelatable. And so it's kind of a slog to get through or on the worst side of things, it's, it's, uh, it feels shameful. Um, there's a lot of resistance to it. Uh, there's, you know, an acknowledgement that you have to work through something and, and get better, which implies that you're not where you want to be. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that you can design the experience um, so that you're doing rehabilitative exercises, perhaps, without even realizing that that's what you're doing, mm -hmm. right? Can you find ways of uh, designing a world or guiding a person into, into behaving in such a way where they are improving their health mm -hmm. and their mobility and they have no idea. It's kind of an afterthought because they're mm -hmm. so excited with the experience. A good example um, in terms of how I, as a part of a comp the company, has, has been has been thinking about this. Um, in this game, I think it's called VR Carnival. I don't quite remember which one it was, but it was it, it had to do with being a part of a carnival. And it's in VR. <clears throat> and one of the games in the carnival is a flapjacks toss, where you are kind of you're holding this plate, and then flapjacks start shooting at you and you have to catch the flapjacks and then you have to balance the flapjacks as they stack cool so all of a sudden you're doing these micro movements and adjustments to try to maintain this tower of flapjacks from falling it looks super fun you have this really nice whimsical music involved um the the physics in the game is translating to your actual movements because you're using controllers or um you, you have virtual hands and so your brain is just understanding like these are your hands your movements are are being translated properly here mm -hmm. and as a result your body is moving in all these ways to adjust for the imbalance of the flapjack tower and that is sometimes uh, well, that is exercise uh, for folks with limited mobility or maybe with injuries. That is significant exercise um, where, you know, by comparison, um, if you're just prescribed with, OK, now you shift to the left and shift to the right and do that 30 times. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're giving those instructions and you're supposed to do that at home, uh, sitting on your couch or like standing in the middle of your living room, it just doesn't it doesn't have the same motivation. It doesn't incentivize you to to accomplish the same task with the same enthusiasm or activation whereas vr you're just doing it without being told that this is what you're doing all you're doing is just trying to balance flapjacks in a fun game mm -hmm. that's awesome as a funny anecdote that reminds me of me trying to take up running three years ago and i said i just asked my wife can she like chase me down with the car or send, <laughs> you know send somebody after me with a saw or something that i could run because this is so damn boring and actually more to your point luckily that summer i found uh an app called zombie run mm. which kind of did that um and i ended up like now i'm a runner like this is fantastic but it took that i can't run without it actually because it's so damn boring <laughs> <laughs> that's so fascinating exactly that's exactly the the experience that i'm trying to target that's awesome so this might be a technical question and I don't know, it might be part of your research that you want to patent, so you might not want to say anything. So I'm just going to throw mm -hmm. it out there. But is there a way to build games that take the data of what you're finding? So if an individual client has mobility issues, let's say on the right and the left, 
So I would adjust the flapjack game to work towards exactly what you're looking to do. Absolutely. And um, so a lot of uh, virtual reality companies that look at healthy aging, I think a lot of them are looking primarily at mood. Um, whereas for us, we, we want to be looking at, um, I mean, mood is still extremely important. I'm a counselor for a reason. And some of these other health gaps exist. Um, and, and that's exactly the, the part that we find is uh, so, so important is the health data, the data that's collected on a longitudinal basis. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have multiple exposures uh, of a person doing something for several months, and then you can start analyzing like, you know, where are the parts that are the most challenging for this person? And are there ways to, to improve that dimension of their health uh, by introducing, you know, a more challenging experience or, you know, amplifying this particular motion. That is absolutely something we're exploring. That's neat. I'm just picturing my, uh, my grandmother playing a virtual reality version of Candy Crush, having to like stand up and move them. That'd be amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, awesome. Yeah. And it's all tied together. I would say, you know, it's in therapy, we take a full body approach, right? It's the biopsychosocial. When somebody walks in the room, it's their whole world. Mm -hmm. which includes how they move in it, includes the body, all of that stuff. Um, because it's all one package, right? Yes. Gone are the days of, of Descartes where we've kind of cut people's heads <laughs> off with mind and body as separate. It's actually, you know, we're, we're beginning to catch up with the idea that it's one thing. Okay. So whatever you're working on is going to work on the other, which we see specifically in things like trauma counseling. Right. It's, we use a bottom up approach. You can work with the body. Then we end yes. up in the mind. But that's because they all dance together in tandem. It's all one thing. Mm -hmm. And there's so much still yet to ex be explored. Um, the mind gut relationship, mm -hmm. how what we eat informs our experiences with our traumas and our bodies. Um, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll ask my clients uh, very simple questions. You know, what's your caffeine intake? You know, if they come in saying I have an anxiety problem, I'm like, OK, let's let's go through some questions first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, you know, are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting enough water? Are you eating well enough? You know, who do you live with? And what is your relationship with them? And how does that impact your body uh, to be kind of, you know, hypervigilant all the time if, if they're not treating their needs uh, with, with seriousness? <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's absolutely an, a holistic approach that's uh, needing to be kind of put in the forefront. Definitely. Well, Sherry, that brings us to the end here. This was fantastic. Um, I'm definitely going to bug you to come back uh, at some <laughs> point. Um, but yeah. it's great to have you on the show. Yes, yes. I'm excited, um, especially for, for a part two. We didn't even get a chance to talk about things like, you know, technology security or like practices uh, in the workplace that, that might have mental health impacts, um, things like Zoom fatigue and and all these other very important uh, topics that I think um, both practitioners and audience members would benefit from. Definitely. So I will send you an email so you can come back in September. I'll be taking a, a few months off uh, as of July 1st. My, my wife is expecting. Uh, <gasps> yes, so I'll be right. having a, a little one at the end of July. So I'll be taking two months off because that's going to be crazy and a fun and all that sure. stuff. Oh, you must be so excited. I am. I am. We, uh, it's, uh, talk about experiences, right? There's nothing <laughs> right. quite like this. I will say that right now. <laughs> it's changed my characteristics and um, the way I am in ways I didn't, I didn't see possible. Yeah. And the little one hasn't even arrived yet. <laughs> yep. Not even on the scene. <laughs>
Well, awesome. All right. So we'll have you back uh, in September. I'll send you an email anyway. Uh, okay. we'll, we'll kind of sort that out. But thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a blast and I can't wait for the next one. Awesome. All right. And for everyone, thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, you know where to find Sherry. You can send her a message on LinkedIn. Just look up Sherry Law. If you're interested in her research, it's all there as well. Um, you'll be able to find it. And as far as I am, you know exactly where to find me. I've said it a thousand times. Uh, but on Instagram, you can go couch.2.couch. That's the number two. Uh, or send me an email at chuck at chuckleblanccounseling.ca. Until next time, take care.